John chapter 3. I'm going to read scripture before we dismiss children. If you have not checked your children in at the check-in, please do so and try to do it before the service begins. That would be greatly helpful. John chapter 3. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Bible's in the back. We're in John chapter 3. I'm going to read verses 1 through 15. I read from the ESV, English Standard Version Bible. John chapter 3, verse 1. Now there's a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher from God, for no one can do these signs, miraculous signs, that you do unless God is with you. And Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus, in verse 4, said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is flesh. Do not marvel. That I said to you, you must be born again. For the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Verse 9. Nicodemus said, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel? And yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen. But you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can, I, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? Verse 13, no one has ascended into heaven except he who's descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word this morning. Let's just pray one more moment. Lord, thank you for your word. As the kids go out, we ask your blessing upon them, the teachers, that they too will enjoy gospel conversations, look into Jesus Christ, who is the gospel. We pray this in, in his special, sweet, wonderful name. Amen. All right, kids, you're dismissed. Again, check them in if you have not. And the rest of us are going to be in John 3. Our series has been called The Invisible Made Visible. The Invisible Made Visible. We sang about that a moment ago. The gospel, this gospel account by John is, is all about the God who took on flesh and bones. He is the immortal who became mortal, the invisible who became visible, the invulnerable who became vulnerable, the holy one who becomes someone that you can embrace. That's what the gospel account is all about. That's what John, through the work of the Spirit, was trying to teach us. And this morning, as we're going through this book, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, we're in chapter 3. Again, we were there last week, looking at the encounter between Jesus and a religious man named Nicodemus. So what I think we need to do this morning, and what I'm going to do this morning, is do a short review of last week because we're going to finish out this conversation that Jesus began, that we looked at last week, and he'll finish the conversation with Nicodemus. And I think that we got to have a good understanding of what we were at last week, part one, before we jump into part two today. So that's what we're going to do a few minutes, a little more longer than maybe I usually do as an inter- uh, as a uh, recap, but I, we need to do that this morning. Because... Where we start and what we're looking at in this conversation is very important, most important, 1 Corinthians 15, we read that today, most important. 
And, and, and the question is, how can Nicodemus, in the context, how can Nicodemus receive this thing or this idea, this, what Jesus is trying to teach him about being born again? Nicodemus, you have a need. And, and your need is to be born again. Why is that so important? We're going to look at that. Then we're going to look at the evidence. Because Jesus is going to show us what the evidence looks like when someone has been born anew, born from above, born again, new creation. Different words meaning the same thing in Scripture. So there's a need, there's evidence, and then there's this testimony of Jesus concerning what he's talking about. How does he know what he's saying? And Jesus is going to make that clear. And then we'll wrap up this conversation today in verse 15, 14 and 15, because Jesus is not going to leave us to our own way of thinking. What does it mean to be born again? How does one become born again? He's going to tell us. We're going to be very clear when we get done with this, what Jesus is trying to say as we look at verse 14 and 15 and come to the resolution of the question, how can I be born again? Okay, so first the need. Let, let me, what I want to do is, I just want to point out some observations from last week. We'll just hit a couple and then we'll move on, okay? Number one, the first observation we must keep in mind, we looked at this a little bit last week, is, is that signs and wonders, signs and wonders were never meant to be the be all and end of all, okay? It's not, it's not the end itself. In other words, this context, our narratives, teach us clearly that miraculous signs cannot by themselves give Nicodemus or us new life. Look with me, if you can, to chapter 2, one verses, a couple of verses before uh, this chapter 3, verse 1, and that's chapter 2, verse 23. Verse 23, verse 24, and verse 25 is an insert, if we can say that, a connection, a bridge between what, what uh, our brother Ricky taught on the cleansing of the temple and the meeting with Nicodemus. John the Apostle sticks this three verses in for reasons, not there just for, for giggles, right? There's a reason for it, right? Verse 23, now when he was in Jerusalem, he had cleansed the temple at the Passover f- feast. Many believed in his name when they saw what? The signs that he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. Now if you take notes in your Bible or you like to write in your Bible, look at verse 23 and verse 24. The word there believed in verse 23 and the word entrusted himself in verse 24 comes from the great, uh, same Greek word believed, trusted. And what John is doing, he's doing this play on words that says that people trusted, people believed in his name as they saw the signs, but Jesus did not believe or did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. Jesus knew all people. There's the omniscient uh, attribute of God that he knows all things. He knows, Jesus is saying, what human beings are like. He's not confused about those who are fake and those who are real. God knows all things, all people. That's what he's saying. And the point is that Jesus did not believe their believing. He didn't trust their, he he, he saw that what they, they, they professed, but he knew something more. He wasn't going to entrust himself to what was going on. Why? Because he knew that to exercise faith simply on the grounds of having witnessed miraculous signs is very dangerous, to say the least. 
Let's not forget, three years, Jesus' ministry, healing, raising people from the dead. Three years later, he's hanging on a cross. He's dead. He goes into the tomb, right? And there's no one around. How many really true believers were there? It wasn't until after he rose from the dead and the spirit was given for them to actually get it. Jesus said in chapter 12 of Matthew, very important, that the scribes and the Pharisees, religious leaders said, teachers, show us a sign. Give us a sign. We demand a sign. And he says to them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks a sign. No sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah, which is Jesus in the grave. When the demand for more signs comes from a defiant heart, it's simply a cover-up for the unwillingness and the hard-heartedness of people that they want, don't want to believe. Can miraculous signs bring people to the faith in, in the person and the work of Jesus? Absolutely. Read the book of Acts. Absolutely. But if the, if the, if the person is wondered and, 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 and awed by the miracle and not by the incalculable worth of Jesus Christ and faith in him alone, it doesn't mean a thing. Just another miracle worker. John Piper gets it right. He says, signs and wonders are not the saving word of grace. They're God's secondary testimony to the word of his grace. Signs and wonders do not save. They are not the power of God unto salvation. They do not transform the heart any more than music, art, or drama which accompany the gospel. Signs and wonders can be imitated by Satan, but the gospel is utterly contrary to his nature. What changes the heart and saves the soul is the self-authenticating glory of Christ seen in the message of the gospel. That's important. Jesus did not believe their believing. Signs and wonders do not impart life. In comes Nicodemus, number two, observation. Obviously, Nicodemus was following the signs. It says in verse one, uh, verse two, the man came to Jesus by night. We know that you're a teacher from God. No one can do these signs. So obviously, John is connecting the two, those who had this spurious uh, faith and Nicodemus. He was following the signs, and he comes to Jesus, and he wants to talk about it. Okay, now let, let me remind everybody who this Nicodemus is. He's not the average Joe that's walking in the streets in, in, in Jerusalem. He's a Pharisee. He's part of a men. He's part of a group of men who took very seriously the, the obeying and, and, and following the laws of God, their moral conduct. He was a man of purity, according to uh, the Pharisees' uh, conduct. He was a theological conservative of his day. He knew the Old Testament scriptures extremely well. He's on the council of the Sanhedrin, the power brokers of Israel. Sanhedrin was that ruling body. It's a very powerful, influential, separatist, uh, holy, doing right, moral conduct kind of guy. What's the point? I, I can't be any clearer. Religion does not impart life. The signs are only sufficient, really, to get this conversation started between Jesus, the teacher, and the teacher of Israel. And Jesus tells them, listen, in order to enter the kingdom, you must be born again. The Jewish understood kingdom. The Jewish people for centuries, even to this day, are anticipating with great joy and great anticipation of the coming kingdom that God promised through Abraham and through King David that someday the son of David will come and he will reign on an eternal kingdom, in an eternal kingdom. 
There'll be, uh, uh, the, the world will, will experience the shalom of God, the perfect peace, psychological, emotional, economic, spiritual peace. They knew that. And like most Jews, Nicodemus believed being a good Jew is automatic entrance into the kingdom. One must be born again to get into the kingdom, must, must be born again to see the kingdom. Jesus is speaking to him about this coming reign and rule of perfection and shalom of God. It's very clear. He's assuring him, if we look at verse 3, 5, and 7, he says it over again, unless you've been born again, unless you've been born again, you will not see, you will not enter the kingdom. Nicodemus, no matter how much you study the scriptures, no matter how much you memorize books, no matter how much you go to church and you give to charity and you help the little lady across the street, it's not enough. You, in order to get right, you've got to have a miracle work of God, born from above, born again. It is the work of God where he implants in you his DNA through the work of his spirit that dwells within us. That's what it means to be born again. Nicodemus, like verse 4, how can a man be old when he, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb? Nicodemus like, you could do a lot of things. You could promise a lot of things, but really, climbing back into your mother's womb, how can I be born again? How can I have a rebirth? Jesus said, truly I say to you, unless, it's conditional, unless, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel. He said, do not marvel what I say. You must be born again. Now, the you there in verse 7 is plural. means everybody. This is what he's saying in a nutshell. What's born of the flesh is flesh. What, what flesh begets is flesh. Horses give birth to horses, right? Dogs give birth to dogs. Flesh, human nature, gives birth to human nature. That which is spirit gives birth to spirit. That which begets, that which begets. That's what he's trying to say. That's the point he's trying to make, okay? Here's the problem. Here's the problem, family. The, the scriptures are clear that the human nature, since Adam and Eve's sin and, and death and sin entered the world through their sin, everyone is born, human nature, spiritually, spiritually dead. Romans 5. Just as sin came into the world through one man, that's Adam, and death through that sin, death spread to everyone because all have sinned. Ephesians 2. You were dead in your sin. Why, Jesus assures Nicodemus, listen, what's born of the flesh is flesh, it's dead. What's born of the spirit is spirit, it's alive. You need life. You need to be born of the spirit in order to see, in order to enter the kingdom of God. This is not some sect of Christianity that may you have heard of. Oh, those born-again Christians. Jesus is saying to a religious, conservative, Bible-thumping, Bible-knowing religious leader, you, plural, must be born again. It's clear as day. Clear as day. You're alive, I know, Nicodemus. We're having this conversation. I could see you, but you really, you're dead. You're part of the human race, and that is all dead. What you need, and it's not partly dead, well, mostly dead. <laughs> all your moral work, all your morality, all what you do cannot impart life. Right? Even the comments, oh, I saw the works that you did. I saw the miraculous things. I know you from God. Doesn't get you into the kingdom. What you need to do and what I need to do and what he needs to do in order to have life is to be born again. The supernatural work of God. That's what he's trying to say. And family, the scriptures teach us that when we are born of the spirit, the Holy Spirit is what unites us. He's the agent and what unites us to Christ. 
Christ in Christ, there's eternal living life in you because John says in him was life. So the Holy Spirit brings us into eternal union with Jesus who is the life. I want you to see that this morning. John writes in his first epistle, this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life and life, this eternal life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. In the son there is life. Out of the son there is not life. You need to be born again. You need to have life. It's through Jesus. Through Jesus, you're connected with him. You have union with him. You have eternal life in him. That's what he's saying in Nicodemus. Now look at the evidence. What Jesus does now, and he shows Nicodemus, and he's using an analogy to show him about a person born of the Spirit and the wind. Look at verse 7 and 8 with me. He says, do not marvel. Do not marvel. I say to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, and you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. The word wind, pneuma, in the Greek, ra, in, in the Hebrew, is sometimes translated breath or, or spirit. It comes from the same word. depends on the context. Well, this context is perfectly clear. Hearing of the wind, mentioning the origin, mentioning the destination, obviously means he's talking about as the wind blows. That's the context. He's drawing an analogy, and he's telling us two very important things about the wind. First one is this. The wind, he says, cannot be controlled. It blows where it wills. The wind can't be controlled. It blows where it wills. Today we, we redirect wind. We have, you know, different ways in which we, we direct it. We use this power for energy. And through meteorology, we can watch the wind currents and things of that nature. But we are not controlling the wind. If that were the case, there would be no more tornadoes ripping through cities, right? We would not, we'd be able to stop disasters that are caused by the wind. When the ancients thought of the wind, they could not locate either its place of origin or its final destination But what they have in common and what we have in common is that we can feel and hear its force. That's what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, it's with the Holy Spirit. You can't see it, but you could see the evidence of it. Now, I just want to take just a two-second side note and just tell you, when Jesus is talking about the Spirit here, he's not trying to teach us or he's not uh, drawing a conclusion that it's an it. It's not like, well, just like the wind is an it and it's a force, you don't really, so is the Holy Spirit. That's not what he's saying. Because in John chapter 14, chapter 15, and chapter 16, and we'll get there, he talks about the Holy Spirit and he uses the personal pronoun he in many places. Why? Because he's the third person of the Trinity. He's a person. He's a person that can be grieved. He's a person that can be quenched. The scripture says he's a person that could be obeyed. He's a person that could be rejoiced in. He's a person that can be rejected. But in all that he came to do, he still remains omnipotent, all-powerful, and sovereign. You cannot control him. You cannot contain him. You cannot rule over him. That's what Jesus is saying. All that the Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, sets out to do, he will accomplish. That's what he's saying. That the third person of the Trinity will 
And in the context, what he's saying is the third person, God, the Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, is irresistible and unfailing effectiveness in his work. So he's irresistible, unfailing, effective in his work of new birth. You can't see him, you can't control him, but he's getting done this new birth when he sets out to do it. Some people in theology call this irresistible grace. It does not mean that people don't resist the Holy Spirit. They do. Stephen getting stoned in Acts chapter 7. Right? The religious leaders yoke him up and they're, they're going to ready to hit him in the head with a bunch of rocks. And he looks up and he says to them, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Spirit. Generations upon generations, maybe family members in your own life, you see them clearly resisting the Holy Spirit. But what Jesus is talking about here, when he talks about the sovereign will of the Spirit that you can't control, you can't contain, and other verses, he's talking about the effectual calling, the, the, the sovereign work of the Spirit in new birth. That's what he's talking about. John 6, no one comes to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. All that the Father gives me will come, and whoever comes I will not cast out. John chapter 6, verse 65, Jesus said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted by my Father. Some of you may follow the Together for the Gospel uh, online, maybe it's through Facebook. It's a, it's a great ministry. We're getting ready to go. Some of the pastors here in, in Louisville in, October, excuse me, in April to see the conference. It's called Together for the Gospel. Matt Chandler is a pastor in, in Dallas. Uh, wrote something this week, and I, and I cut and pasted it on here. He said this, he said, God did not ask my approval. He did not ask my opinion before he invaded my life. That's how I felt. He wasn't knocking and going, you know what, if you have time, my doors were blown open by the work of the Spirit. If I had my way, I would still be running in the wrong direction. Paul wrote Timothy, don't be ashamed of the testimony of the Lord, nor me as prisoner, but share in the suffering for the gospel is the power of the God who saved us and called us to a holy calling. It was that separate calling because not of our works, but because of his own, listen, because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Again, I just want to quote one more time. John Piper. It's just so succinct. He says, what the sovereignty of grace and the sovereignty of the Spirit mean is that when God chooses he can overcome the rebellious and resistance of our wills. That's what he did to me. He can make Christ look so compelling that our resistance is broken and we freely come to him and receive him and believe on him, end quote. It doesn't deny that we are making choices. It doesn't deny the real and genuine act of our wills. Our choice, our wills is absolutely real. It is the work of the Spirit but is the result of the sovereign work of God. So we make choices. But what Jesus is saying here, he will blow where he wills. He will go where he wants. He will give the new birth where he chooses to go. Number one, he's sovereign. Number two, there's effect. There's, there, there's perceivableness, if I can use that word, in the wind blowing, right? I mean, who knows? Maybe Jesus was talking to Nicodemus and the wind was blowing at the time. I mean, you see the trees, right? You don't see the wind, but you see the trees. You see the effects. You see the, maybe the, the clouds flying by. Maybe you, you feel it on your face. We got the wind chill coming in a couple of months. You feel that, right? So it is with the Spirit. We witness his effects. 
Remember, John used the verb, not the noun, believing, because it is this constant. It is this living life with Jesus. It is following Jesus. It is, it is active. It is relational. It is ongoing. It involves not only change of direction, but allegiance to Christ. That's what it means to believe. John writes in, not only in, in the gospel here, his account of the gospel, the word believe in the verb, in the action mode, but in his letter, in 1 John, I know some of the ladies studied it. The reason why he wrote 1 John is he wanted to refute the false teachers, the Gnostics of his day. The second reason, two main reasons, I think, the second reason was because he, he, he wanted to give assurance to genuine Christians that if you believe on him, you do have life. And he wanted to reassure them because they were, they were uncertain. You know how he did it? He gave them tests. He tested them. He said, listen, if you're a genuine believer in Jesus Christ, there'll be fruit. And he tests them first theologically. He says, unless you unequivocally believe that Jesus is the eternal, the pre-existent Son of God, became flesh and blood, and died on the cross, you cannot be a Christian. He's not a created being. He's the eternal Son of God who always was. Okay? Number two, he tests them not only theological but morally. He says, if you've been born of God, if you've been really regenerated, there'll be evidence, there'll be an outwork of your life, not perfection. Romans 7 talks about struggles. I'm not talking about struggling, but growth. Some people grow faster than others, but there's a change of direction, a change of allegiance. Then he says, not only will there be a theological test, a moral test, but he says, there's a relational test. If you say you love God, hate your brother, guess what? It doesn't get you into heaven loving your brother, but it's certainly evidence of a life that's been changed. That's the point. We don't work our way. We don't, we don't work our way to get our theology straight. Or we don't work our way morally. We don't work our way uh, relationally and to get to heaven. But if the new birth has taken place, things will change. That's the point. If the spirit works. The effects are undeniable and, and, and unmistakable. There's a new purpose. A life is born. There's an inner determination to follow Jesus. Some of you may have heard of Billy Sunday. He was an evangelist, a very well-known evangelist in the in, uh, middle of the 19th into the 20th century. Billy Sunday and a certain individual walking down the street when this you know, neighborhood drunk comes walking out and staggering out of the bar and the man turned to Billy Sunday and said, hey, isn't he one of your converts? And Billy's like, yeah, you're right. He's one of mine, not God's. You know, like nothing changed. The spirit is sovereign and cannot be controlled, yet its effects can be seen through the transformation of lives. Now, I want to point out one thing before we move on. And maybe this is... Uh, something that someone in this room needs to hear. If you come to church and you're here, I'm glad you're here. I'm glad you're here. But if it's only because of some moral obligation, maybe to feel good about yourself, um, you know, maybe even, you know what, I'm eager to listen or at least to follow the teaching of Jesus. He was a good man. He had a lot of nice things to say. Maybe I could pick something up along the way. Okay, but, but there is no inner work of the Spirit. There is no birth, new birth. There is no new heart. I'm going to tell you, I'm going to be honest with you, following religious rules and conduct is going to get either very old, in which you become frustrated, irritated, exasperated, and eventually walk away just fed up, or you're going to get so comfortable in your do's and don'ts and giving God time, giving God money, giving God nice people that you lose in the reality is that you can't work your way up. And that outward external religion will not get you anywhere but frustrated and damned. What you need is a new heart. 
And God changes us from the inside. I praise God that some of the things, not all the things, because there's some things I still like to do that I ain't supposed to do, but some of the things began to change on the inside. The things that I was not supposed to do, which God calls sin, wasn't an external fight, it was an internal work of the Spirit. Then when I come to church, there's a joyous reaction to the grace and mercy that God has shown me, that He still loves me, even though I'm a hardhead. Then all of a sudden, my change is inner, not outward. That's a big problem. That's a big problem in the church today. It's the work of the Spirit. It's an internal work of the Spirit. Look at the testimony. She's like, listen, Nicodemus like, how do you know all this? She's like, I know because I've been there. Look at verse 9. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Come on. Really? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel? You don't know and you don't understand these things? We talked a little bit about this last week. All this talk about new life, all this talk about spirit born again and new life and and new spirit and and water, I mean, and spirit was something God told the Old Testament saints through the scriptures. Nicodemus was a scholar. He's like, you don't understand this? It's in your Bible. He's probably talking about several verses, but one in particular is Ezekiel. Ezekiel 36, a promise made hundreds of years before this encounter. God promised through the prophet Ezekiel, I will take you from the nations. I will gather you from all the countries and I will bring you into our land. I will sprinkle, listen, clean water. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. The sin that's in your life will be cleansed. I will cleanse you from idols. I will give you a new heart, water heart, a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh or a new soft heart. I will put my spirit within you. And listen to this. I will put my spirit within you. See, water, washing, cleansing, work of Jesus, everything in there. And then he says, and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. New heart, cleansed, washed, new, new, new uh, cleansing work of Jesus, a new desire to walk with him. That's what it means. That's what he's talking about. And here he says to the teacher, you don't understand that? You're not getting that? Truly I say to you, verse 11, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you, you, you don't receive our testimony. The first thing you should pick up on that verse is we. Who's Jesus talking about? We. We speak, we know, we bear witness, our testimony. Hmm. Nicodemus chapter, same chapter three, verse two. Rabbi, we know you're a teacher of God. We talked about that being maybe he's a representative of the Sanhedrin or maybe the Sanhedrin was kicking it and like, yo, let's go find out what this guy, well, I'm here as a representative. Well, who's Jesus representing? Some people think his disciples. I don't. I think his disciples were struggling at this time. I don't think so. Some people say it was John the Baptist. The testimony of John the Baptist. Now the testimony of Jesus, we. Some people think, well, he's just talking about Old Testament or what Nicodemus should have known. Maybe it's the Old Testament scriptures. We testify. I'm testifying and the scripture testifying. That's possible too. John the Baptist, I think, is possible. But the final one, I think, and I'll say this loosely because I really don't know what he was talking about. We is Father, Son, and Spirit. The testimony of the Father, the testimony of the Spirit, and now the testimony of Jesus, a Trinitarian testimony. That could possibly be it. Um, for you following 
Carson's uh, study on this. He says it was probably sardonically apping the, that, the plural that Nicodemus came to Jesus with. In other words, Jesus was kind of going, oh, you're saying we, you're a teacher of Israel, and we have done this. And Jesus is going, yeah, we, I'll give you we. We're saying this. So kind of like, a, that's possible too, I don't know. But all I know is that Jesus is saying we, he means somebody. I believe it's Father, Son, and Spirit. And look what he says in verse 12. I have told you, the testimony, I've told you earthly things, you don't believe. How can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? Well, it's rhetorical, you can't. If I'm telling you things that you ought to understand, how can, that it's, it's, it's part of earth. You don't understand. I can't kick it with you about the heavenly things. How are you going to understand kingdom, the consummation of the kingdom, the glorious understanding of the kingdom? How could you possibly understand that? You don't understand the wind. You don't understand the scriptures. You don't understand the things that are going on right here. Yeah, new birth is a spiritual uh, uh, renewal, but it happens on earth. So he's talking about wind, he's talking about spiritual renewal, he's talking about things that happen on earth, he's talking about the scripture, he still doesn't get it. So he says to Nicodemus, listen, you're stumbling over just simple rudimentary points of entrance into the kingdom. Life in the kingdom, indescribable reign and rule of God, you will not understand. But, he says, let me explain why I know what I'm talking about. Look at verse 13. No one has ascended into heaven except he who has descended from heaven. Now look what it says, the son of man. See what Jesus is doing? He's saying, listen, I know what I'm talking about because I got it firsthand. Only the one who has come down from heaven is prepared to give you the answer that you need about being born again. I'm the only one that's been there and the only one has descended and now I can give you a report on exactly what you need to know. I am the son of man. Family, this is very different than Lazarus who came back to death. Other people have come, died and came back. This is very different than that. Look with me in chapter one for just a second. Because this context about I come down from heaven, uh, I've been there, I know what I'm talking about. It's not just simply anyone. But look at chapter one, verses one. The description, you have to see this in light of John's prologue. Chapter one, verse one through 18. You have to see it in this. He says in verse one, in the beginning was the word. That's the pre-existing All eternal word always existed. In the beginning was, the word was means eternal, right? Never beginning, never an end. Then he says, look, and the word was with God, face-to-face intimacy with the Father. Look down at verse 18. No one has ever seen God. Not in the way I am talking about, Jesus is saying, but the only God, that's him, who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Catch that. What Jesus is saying is, I am at the Father's side. I have come down from the Father. I am revealing to you in a way that nobody else can, the Father, because I am God. I am the second person of the Trinity within the God and all the fullness of God dwells. He says, in Jesus, I have a perspective that nobody else has. You say, well, that's kind of, you know, do you see that there? Look at the Son of Man. No one, he says, except the Son of Man. We talked about this. The Son of Man is Daniel 7. The Son of Man who was presented before the Ancient of Days was in the throne room of God and all dominion, all power, all glory, all worship was given to the Son of Man. To a monotheistic Jew, they understood no one gets worship, no one gets glory, no one gets kingdoms, no one gets dominion, but God himself. And Jesus is like, listen, that's me. The son of man, all authority has been given to me, worship has been given to me. They understood exactly what he was talking about. And why is that so important? If I 
want to, if I have gone to a, a let's say an Apple or Macintosh, call them Apples, uh, to a factory where they put together these, these computers, and I've been there, I watched them do it. And then I come and I'm like, oh, you got a problem with your computer, I could fix it, because I, I, I've been there. I can't. I wouldn't know what I'm doing, but I was there. There's a big difference between that and saying, oh, no, I was there when we created it. I made it. I know the interworking of it. I created it. If you got a problem, I can fix it. That's what Jesus is saying. Not that I've been there, and so I'm just listening and taking notes so I can explain it to you. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, I am the one who created you. I am the one who knows you. I am the one who holds all things together. I am life in itself. Therefore, I know what I'm talking about. Nicodemus, you don't know. And you know what, Nicodemus? You don't understand. I'm telling you, earthly things, you can't understand them because you can't, you'll never understand spiritual things. But I'll tell you what, he tells Nicodemus. <laughs> you may not know, but I'm going to tell you something that's going to be written in Scripture for us today. I'm going to tell you and give you an honest and truthful answer to your question, Nicodemus. Je- Jesus does not leave Nicodemus wondering. Even though he doesn't get it, He's going to tell Nicodemus how someone could be born again, how someone can enter into the kingdom, how someone that can see the kingdom, how someone can be reconciled to God. I'm going to tell you. Now listen carefully. There are lots of teachers, spiritualists, religions, okay, philosophies, scholars, colleges, high schools that give you the answer how to be connected to God. A lot of philosophies, a lot of ways. If you ask Nicodemus, he would say, follow the law, do the law. If you ask Oprah Winfrey, she'll tell you Jesus didn't die on a cross and only came just to show us love. She said, God is a feeling, not something to believe. Every other religion, every other philosophy tells us God is up there and we must reach him, be it Buddhism, Islam, Hindu, New Age, whatever. We live in a culture that's pluralistic and everything is relative. All paths lead to God. And whatever your truth is must be true. Jesus right here is claiming very clearly to Nicodemus the heavenly things in which Jesus is teaching us cannot come to us through working at it, through human rationale, intellectual reasoning, renovation, assumption, speculation, but must come to us through revelation. The unveiling of who God is through regeneration. That's the only way, through new birth. Jesus is making a claim, family, like nobody else has ever made before. When he speaks of connecting us to God, it's true because he is God come to us to explain us, explain to us who he is because he is God. Jude wrote, contend for the faith. Sometimes we feel that way. We feel like we're contending for the faith. The exclusivity of Christ is being laughed at. And we must stand firm on the scripture, on the claims and teaching of Jesus Christ. Maybe you're here today and you're thinking, oh, I believe all paths lead to God. That's not what Jesus said. That is not what Jesus claimed. That is not an option according to scripture. It's not an option. Now, I, don't want to, I think it's very important that we're not arrogant about it. We need to be humble and gracious and overwhelming, generous to others. Because that's the gospel. Jesus was generous, humble, and overwhelmingly gracious to us. But the truth remains the same. And it's evidenced, it's, excuse me, the testimony comes from the one who's been there. The resolution. Okay, Jesus, we see the need, you must be born again. I, I get that. We see the evidence of that which is born again. There's a change in his life like the wind. He is sovereign. He will cause the, the new birth, but it's 
clearly seen in the wind. Well, I get that. There's a testimony. I'm telling you all this because it comes from heaven. I've been there. I'm the only one. I'm the son of man. I'm God himself. Come to reveal God to you. It's all right. You still didn't answer the question. How does one become born again? Look at verse 14. Here's the resolution. He brings it right back to the very beginning. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And you think, where did that come from? (laughs) Any Jew, let alone a Pharisee, and scholar would immediately know exactly the reference to that passage of Scripture. It is found in Numbers 21. Genesis, Exodus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. uh, Genesis, Exodus, Numbers, come on. Leviticus and Deuteronomy. Numbers 21. If you have an Old Testament Bible, turn there. Numbers 21. Let me give you quickly, just real quickly. Moses, by God's power and strength and goodness, redeemed and rescued Israel out of bondage in Egypt. They've crossed the Red Sea. They're in the promised land. They went to Sinai, first part of the book, and received regulations and, and numbering of the people. That's the beginning of the book. The middle of the book, is when, which we're looking at, is when they were in from Sinai, they went to a place called Moab. And then at the end of the book, it's about what's going on in Moab. Okay? By chapter 21, Moses' brother Aaron is dead. They're in, they're in Moab. We pick up in chapter 21. What's interesting about chapter 21 is the first part of it is this faith and Israel just does great things. And in the end, same thing. There's faith and trust, faith and trust. And right there in Numbers 21, verses 4 through 9, very short passage, there's a bad situation happens. Very short. But this is what Jesus is pointing to, okay? So let's read Numbers 21, verse 4. Listen to what it says. From Mount Or, they set out on the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient. How many people have been impatient? Right, before we judge them, let's relate. I'm impatient. I'm very impatient. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? They just left 400 years of slavery, right? For there is no food. There is no water. And we loathe this worthless food, right? So there's sniveling, there's complaining, uh, half-truths going on. They're not starving to death. God gave them food, manna from heaven. He gave them quail. Maybe they didn't like the manna, but they still gave it to them. They gave them these small birds to eat when they were complaining. There was an abundance of water, but God just broke the rock open. Everybody drank their livestock. I mean, they're really just whining and complaining and not trusting in God's provision. Verse 6, then the Lord... Feel that? Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. You say, whoa. Fiery serpent doesn't mean they came out of nowhere on fire, just so you know. Fiery serpents, ESV, means that they cause you to go on fire. When they bite you, you get high fevers, um, you get uh, uh, insoluble thirst, all-consuming, unquenchable fire within you, your womb gets inflamed, and then you die. You're thinking, wow, they're a little complaining, like I'm going to be careful about complaining next time, I'll tell you that right now. <laughs> I mean, really, bad day, what's going on, you know? God knows exactly what he's doing. What he was teaching the people, that what was happening in their bodies is exactly what was happening in their hearts. 
The poison of the serpent in their body was a mirror, an exact mirror of what was the greater poison of sin, rebellion, complaining that was going on in their heart. Look, verse 7. People came to Moses, we have sinned. That's the point. You got it. We have sinned. We've spoken against the Lord, against you. Pray, please, to the Lord that could take away the serpents from us. And Moses prayed, verse 8. The Lord said to Moses, listen, Moses, make a fiery serpent, set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. Verse 9. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if the serpent bit anyone, he should look at the bronze serpent and live. God says, you know that thing that's biting you? Create it anyway. Put it on a pole. And anybody who looks at it will know that I, the Lord God, will heal them. Obey me, Moses. The people obey me. Look to the pole. Look to the snake. Even though the snake is biting you and killing you, but you look. And if you look in faith, I will heal you. That's the point. It's not a magic trick. The point was God made a promise. All their hope should be on God, that God would bring healing to their sickened body by faith in him as they look to the mounted pole with the snake on it. That's the point. The weak, the lame, the sick looked, and they were healed. And they did that, and they were healed. And God was saying to the Israelites clearly in the desert, I'm the one who heals you of the poison. I will give you life. It's ebbing away by the snake bites, but if you want life, look to me. I'll provide for you. Look to the snake, and that will look to me and my promise and who I am, my power, my mercy, and my provision. Nicodemus is with Jesus centuries, years later, and Jesus says, you want to know about being born again? I'll tell you, Moses, the snake, lifted up. See what he says? Verse 14, 15, 14. Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. So must the Son of Man be, what? Lifted up. When the Old Testament is spoken in the New, a lot of times the context comes with it. What's the context? Nicodemus, you're not trusting in God's provision. Nicodemus, you're standing in judgment like the Israelites. You're not trusting in God's provision like the Israelites. You're dying. You're sick. You're thirsty. You'll never get in. But like Moses was lifted up the snake and the pole, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. If you want to live, if you want to have life, if you want to have, go from spiritual death to spiritual darkness to spiritual life, not by morality, not by efforts, but by simply in faith. Jesus said, lift, Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And whoever believes in him may have eternal life. So the ultimate narrative in in Numbers 21 finds its complete fulfillment on a pole. This was different a little. This wasn't a pole, this was a cross. It wasn't a snake that was lifted up. It was the son of man who was lifted up and crucified on a Roman cross. The snake, symbol of sin, the serpent came to Adam and Eve. Sin and death and hell entered into creation. It brought unquenchable thirst leading to death. And when Jesus was lifted up and hanging on the cross, he said, I thirst. I thirst. When he cried out from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's because he took our thirst. He took your sin, my sin, He died your death, my death. He experienced the wrath and hell and separation that you and I deserve on that cross. This simply means that on the cross, Jesus got treated as sin should be treated. Christ was lifted up. It's a euphemism for death so that he can die in our place and take our spiritual death upon him so that we can have life. 
Jesus says, I will die. I will be smitten. I will be bruised. I will be lifted up on the cross to drink the poison that you and I deserve. That's what he's saying. He got what sin deserved. Jesus, therefore, is the true and better Moses who did not intercede by lifting up a pole, but he himself was risen and hung on a cross. Nicodemus, listen, Nicodemus, Jesus is saying, I'm talking about my death and resurrection is the only means of being born again. Nicodemus, he's saying, you cannot earn your healing. You cannot earn your your healing from sin, from death, from hell. The medicine, the healing, the life is when you not work but look to me. Look to me. Stop trying to save yourself and look to me. Just as the Israelites were cured by obediently looking apart from their own works, look to the pole. We must look to Jesus. We must look to Jesus. Everything else must be peripheral and away from us. It's that man in the hunter in the woods this time of year on that crossbow. Nothing else matters. Everything else is fading away. It's the mom who has their grandson or granddaughter for the first time, or the mother who has that child looking at that baby, nothing else matters. Everything else becomes fading away. That's what it means to look to Jesus. And when you do, whoever believes in him may have eternal life. At the end of the book of Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis says this, the principle runs through all of life from the top to the bottom. Give up yourself and you will find your real self. Lose your life and you will save it. Submit to death, death by your ambitions and favorite wishes every day, and death of your whole body in the end. Submit with every fiber of your being, and you will find eternal life. Keep nothing back. Nothing that you have not given away will ever really be yours. Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Look for yourself and you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, and ruin and decay. But look to Christ. But look to Christ and you will find him. And with him, everything else is thrown in. Are you looking to Jesus? When you look to Jesus for your salvation and him alone, when everything else takes a back seat, the Bible says he will give you his spirit and cause you to have life and be connected in union with Jesus who is the life. Do you understand that? He swallowed and took the poison and died so that you can drink of him and have life. That's the point. That's what he's trying to tell Nicodemus. Do you know that? Let's just bow our heads for a minute. Father, in the quietness of our hearts, as we prepare to sing to you, we ask that your spirit would do a work, that he would be poured out upon us, that we will, maybe for the first time, look to Jesus. Something's missing, something's hollow. We know we are not living right. Like the snake, we have unquenchable thirst that just never seems to satisfy because we have not looked to you. Help us to look to you and to you alone. Help us to sing 
to you and to you alone. Help us by faith to trust in you and you alone. Help us, Father, to look to Jesus, our good God and Savior who went to the cross, bore your wrath, rose victorious over it, and now gives life to those who look to him. Help us to do that. Help us to be encouraged that it's not about me, it's about him. And no matter where I've gone and what I've done, if I look to Jesus, I'll be healed.